Hey everyone, quick note. If you like this show, if you're getting something out of this, you feel like, yep, been there, done that, then I want you to tell your friends about it because I want everyone to know you're not alone. And now, more than ever, on the eve of the inauguration of our 45th president, I want you to know that your voices matter and your stories matter. Stories have real power. You have power. So if you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Laugh, cry, share, and again, know you're not alone. And now, on to today's show. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Jay Newton Small has been a national journalist for over 15 years, covering politics and high-profile events both in the U.S. and abroad for Time Magazine and Bloomberg News. Her book, Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works, was published in 2016. In the fall of that same year, Jay left her job as Washington correspondent for Time Magazine to focus on other things, among them a startup that's in the works, and she's taking her career in a new direction that has a lot to do with caregiving. Jay Newton-Small joins us from Africa. Whereabouts in Africa are you? I'm in Tanzania. Um, oh, my God. In Tanzania. Yeah, I'm excited. Just quickly, to frame this for our listeners, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Sure. So my parents were sort of classic UN parents. Um, They were with the United Nations. My father was Australian, and he met my mother, who was Chinese Malay, in Zambia, where they were both posted in Lusaka. They married in Malawi, and I was born in New York. And so I grew up, gosh, over 10 countries, over five continents as a child. And it was a really wonderful, peripatetic, kind of crazy existence. I think as a kid, you, I really resented it, actually, because I, <laughs> I really wanted to just stay in one place. But you know, as I've gotten older and as I've, I've grown to appreciate um, the diversity and the sort of experiences that I had as, as a child that have really helped form me um, as a journalist, frankly, today. Mm-hmm. And are you an only child? I am. I'm an only child, um, which made the last five years, I think, particularly difficult. So my mother passed away five years ago and well, actually, gosh, six years ago now. And um, and she was my father's primary caregiver. My father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was still in college, actually. I was oh. a junior in college mm-hmm. um, and he had it for 15 years. Um, he passed last year. So I've been struggling with, you know, I was his care, his primary caregiver after my mother passed six years ago for the last five years of his life. And he, you know, it was really, it was definitely a tough experience. And the startup, to some degree, has grown out of that experience. And, you know, I, I moved him into a home a few years ago, and they asked me to fill out this 20-page questionnaire about his life. And I was like, that's crazy. You know, you're never going to understand, you're never going to read 20 pages of handwritten data points for the 150 <laughs> residents you have uh-huh. here. Uh, why don't you... When he let me write write down his story. I'm a journalist. It's what I do. And so 
they were like, okay, you're weird. And I was like, no, 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 I, I write for a living, trust me. And so, um, <laughs> so I wrote down his story and they, they loved it. They were like, this is amazing. Um, it completely transformed his care. In part because, for example, you know, he'd lived in Africa for 20 years. In fact, he'd lived in Africa for about 15 years before he even met my mother. And he'd spent, for example, he would, he'd been in Ethiopia from 1958 to 1964. Um, and two of his caregivers were actually Ethiopian. Mm-hmm. And they had they had no idea that this man had lived in their country that had had actually worked with Haile Selassie, their emperor, uh-huh. during his reign, and and they just loved it. They they read the story and they would sit for hours and show him photos of Addis Ababa and Ethiopia and Lalibela and you know Haile mm-hmm. Selassie and and it really transformed his care. It created these bonds. They became his champions, and they understood when he got really aggressive because about twenty percent of those living with Alzheimer's and dementia eventually get this they he, he would get very aggressive sometimes and they it really helped them be able to redirect him because they knew him so intimately they could distract him quite easily and it introduced him to new caregivers as they came in and so really the the startup which I'm beginning to work on now grew out of that but I'm also um, you know as part of this experience I've, and I think you know, the Alzheimer's is sort of the long goodbye right like my mom died yeah. of a of a brain aneurysm she oh, died um, she must have been young oh, you're young. Yeah, she was 59 when she oh, died. Um, and so she was literally like split second gone, you know, there one moment, gone the next, the fastest death possible. And when I went to the hospital, the surgeons were like, all said to me, oh, you know, that's the way we all hope we go because there's not even time for fear or pain or anything. And sort of conversely, my father had the longest possible death, right? Like 15 years mm. with Alzheimer's is a really long time. And yeah, um, but but the blessing of 15 years with Alzheimer's is that I got to ask him every question that I ever wanted to ask about our his history and our family history. And I interviewed him ad nauseum um, very early on about his life and his adventures. Um, mm. And so I started to, I, after writing Broad Influence, um, and I'd begun this book about my dad years and years and years ago. I sort of started and stopped it and started and stopped it. I've never really finished it. And um, and then when I after I wrote Broad Influence, I, I really felt like it was time to um to write about my dad and and I, I ended up deciding that you know after broad influence mm-hmm. that um I really wanted to write about I really wanted to pick this book up again about my father and about caregiving um and and it, it was it was it was sort of also was in, was influenced by the fact that um my father died last July mm-hmm. and literally within a week of his death time sent me to Charleston South Carolina for two and a half months to to report and write the big cover story we did on um, the massacre of the nine churchgoers right. uh, yeah. um, in, mm-hmm. in the basement of Emanuel Church. The and Dylan I think Roof just seeing, slaughter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And so, so yeah, I think I, I, having sort of lived through their grief and while I was sort of coping with my own grief, I decided that wow. I really wanted to write a book, a book about my dad. Hmm. But I, I quickly figured out that writing a book about caregiving for somebody with Alzheimer's is really depressing <laughs> and like, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and it can be funny sometimes. I mean, certainly there are a lot of anecdotes in the book that, that are quite funny. I mean, you know, for example, my father, um, and I think a lot of people who live with Alzheimer's go through this and it's just that nobody ever talks about this, but my father very soon after my mother died, just started believing that I was my mother, which I think is very common because I look like her. Uh-huh. And so he would, um, asked me to marry him all the time (laughs) and it was it was really sweet but it was also like I was like you know and I was I also probably need therapy for a while because (laughs) you know he would like 
he would like try to like get into bed with me and I'd be like, uh, dad, no. Oh, oh, (laughs) well. So he was not in the care facility at that point. No, No, but you know, but I realized, and I really wanted to care for him myself because he'd been such a wonderful father to me. But I realized really quickly that I couldn't, I brought him to Washington and he would walk my dog and like two hours and five miles and frantic phone calls to the police later, we'd find him five miles away. And, and that's terrifying. You yeah. know, he would wander off. He, he didn't know the neighborhood and he was used to electric stoves in Florida where my parents retired to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I came home one day and the house was full of gas because he was trying to light the stove, mm-hmm. but he thought it was an electric stove and he couldn't understand why it wasn't working. And I was like, Oh my God, you're going to blow up my house, you know? <laughs> but I was lucky in that my father's pension and my mother's death benefit paid for most of his care. And I still basically at the end of his life burned through all of their savings and all of my savings wow. paying for the end of, for the end of his care. Cause it was so expensive yeah. and my entire book advance. I mean like everything, it was just wow. so crazy how expensive it was. So I was lucky in the sense that I almost could afford putting him into a home. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but God, it's so expensive and, and we're just not prepared for it as a society. I mean, it's amazing to me to think of my generation, the sandwich generation where we're going to be essentially choosing to pay for our kids' schools and our parents' care. And our parents' care is almost always going to be more acute because, you know, they're going to need that care desperately. Like, I, for me, it was acute with my dad. Like, I clearly could not keep him at home. He would do damage to himself. He would do damage to me. It just wasn't feasible. Mm-hmm. But what if I hadn't been able to? If I hadn't been able to, my God, I, I would have had to basically quit my job, found a job that I could stay home and write and be with him. And that's a dilemma I think a lot of a lot of Americans are on the cusp of facing as this disease balloons and really becomes an epidemic. Yeah. Um, how old are you, may I ask? Uh, can I say I'm in my mid-30s? Yes, you can. <laughs> you can say whatever you want to say. This is a, this is a very expansive show. <laughs> okay, so you're in your mid-30s and you, talked to, you refer to yourself as being a member of the sandwich generation, which leads me to question, do you have children? No, I don't. Okay, so, so you're in your, not... in your 30s, and you don't have kids, but still, as an only child, the responsibility for care of your parents fell entirely on you. That's a lot. How did you cope? Um, well, I mean, I guess you don't really have an option, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and so mm-hmm. it's, it's not like you have a choice to do this. You, you have to do it. Um, I think that for me, you know, my mother's death was like a, was one sort of thing because that yeah. was so sudden and we hadn't prepared for it. And like she hadn't done a will. I mean, she hadn't done anything. And mm-hmm. so just figuring out her estate and everything else like that took forever. And I will say to all of your listeners, if you have children and you do not have a will, you are abusing your child. <laughs> like, I mean, because it is it's the an meanest interesting thing on the planet. Way to frame it. Uh huh. It seems no, accurate, though. I mean, her estate was like, four or five years in probate because yeah. it took forever to like figure out like what her assets were. I mean, keep in mind, my parents lived in 10 countries over five continents. She had bank accounts in like 13 countries. Oh you know my what I mean? Like, God. Wow. Um, and it was like, it was like insane. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And, and I think that and while not everybody's estate is going to be as hard as my mom's, but look, I mean, she also didn't leave any advanced directives and she actually, the brain aneurysm left her brain dead, but her body was still alive. Oh and my gosh. So 
they were like, do you want to donate her organs? And I was like, uh, I don't know. What's the culture in Chinese Malay culture? Like doing, I had to like call her family and be like, my cousins, like, what do I do? You know? And they were like, it's up to you. And so, mm-hmm. um, I where mean, were they living at that her, point? They were living in Naples, Florida. They retired oh, okay. to Naples. Okay. Okay. So they were in Naples. Uh, so we, we came down here then frequently. Yeah. I came down all the time mm-hmm. to, you know, help ca- take care of dad, to you know, spend holidays with them. Right. So I spend every, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas with them. So you brought um, your, and, your dad back to DC from Naples and he moved in with you. How long did he live with you before you moved him into the care facility and how hard of a decision was that for you? Oof, so a matter of months. Um, it was uh-huh. really quick because I was like, it, it just was very clear it wasn't going to work out with me. And it was awful. I thought my mother's death was actually one of the worst experiences of my life. But like the day that I put my father into a care home was actually the worst day of my life. Oh. And he slapped me across the face and screamed that I was imprisoning him. And mm. that's awful. As like a daughter, you don't you want to like you want to feel like you're giving your father the best possible care. But he was like yelling at me. He's like, he's like, I can live alone. I can live alone. And I was like, Ted, you don't even know my name. No, you can't live alone. Like, wow. Um, well, and- he was a gregarious Australian, as you said, who had a very colorful, exciting life. I mean, it's tough for it both was of you. Tough. Yeah. And I think, you know, nobody, I don't think anyone really wants to go into a home. I mean, that's, right. I don't think anybody thinks, wow, you know, and like these, you know, keep in mind, this is a regressive disease. And so right. he kept looking around at him and he thought he was like in his 30s and 40s and he couldn't understand what he was doing in this place with all these old people, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that's really common actually for a lot of, for a lot of people living with Alzheimer's. And, and so going into a home, I think is, is really, is a tough choice. And I think for a lot of people and one of the reasons why I wanted to be able to write the stories of those living with Alzheimer's dementia and working with homes is because it enables homes to sort of show families that they know their loved ones, that they care about their loved ones, that this isn't like a completely dehumanizing mm-hmm. place. And frankly, they, they oftentimes are. I mean, I found them to be so isolating. You know, like my dad had this best friend, Warren, who he would hang out with all the time. And I knew nothing about Warren except Warren's name. And I'd go visit my dad and I'd see Warren almost like every week, definitely every week, if not twice a week. And I'd be like, hey, Warren, how's it going? And Warren would be like, oh, I'm good. And like, if I knew more about Warren, I absolutely would have hung out with him. I would have engaged him. And I'm sure if Warren's family had known more about my dad, they would have done the same. And so there's really no community in these places. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the things I really wanted to try to change. Mm-hmm. So you, you were providing more of a social history than a medical history. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The stories that we do or the stories we're looking to do are, are purely biographical. And they're not at all about, you know, although the ones we've done so far, we have asked families to sign HIPAA waivers. Mm-hmm. We, um, mm-hmm. but that's only just really to disclose their names. We don't disclose any medical information whatsoever. And the most we talk about like routines, you know, like what do they like to do? What are their hobbies? We leave off all the medical things that homes are looking for and uh-huh. let that let nurses handle that kind of information. Uh-huh. So we really just answer biographical questions. So I'm working, I've compiled a database and we're like, I guess you could say a, a list that I'm, you know, of about 150 journalists that we're working with to tell these stories. And we feel really important that it's done by journalists. Um, right. Because- What's the advantage there of having a professional rather than a family member write a profile? Well, because journalists actually know how to write. We can write quickly, painlessly. We can synthesize data really easily. We found, you know, in speaking with family members and speaking with homes that family members generally take months to answer these questionnaires. 
they find them wrenching. A lot of them don't know how to write or they don't have experience writing, so they tend to not write the right information or write things that are either way too long or way too short or inappropriate. And oftentimes they just won't answer certain questions. And so find, having a professional journalist go through it, ask the questions, they can answer them verbally, and then the journalist can just write the story. It's, it's so much quicker, so much more painless. Family members actually really love it. They feel like it's really an honor to be interviewed by, mm-hmm. by journalists. They kind of get into it and they kind of love the idea. And then, and then when they get the stories, they love them. They're just like really excited about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I forgot to tell you why I'm in Africa. In writing this, my second book, and in looking at my dad's history, again, like I found it so depressing writing about just caregiving. I really wanted to show how, I mean, the person that you is lost, because by the time I was my father's caregiver, I mean, he was not a zombie, but he was not far away from one, especially after the first two years of it, where I was caring for him. And so it felt wrong to portray my father as sort of this shell of the amazing man that he once was. And so I decided that I was going to write a joint memoir where I was going to take all of those interviews and all those notes that I'd done of my dad earlier on in his life and basically write from his perspective, his time when he was my age, living in Africa, like oh, and the amazing adventures cool. he had, mm-hmm. you know, like working with Haley Selassie and, mm-hmm. and exploring the Sudan. And so I'm here in Africa sort of retracing his steps because I'd found it really hard to write about a place where I hadn't spent a lot of time. And in, in, in some cases, I hadn't been to these countries at all. So I really wanted to be able to fill in a lot of the color and the flavors and the scents and sounds where I have my dad, like, tell my dad stories. And I have a, I have a fellowship with New America in D.C. To, to write the book. And and basically, so it flips back and forth between my dad's time in Africa when he was my age and at his prime and doing really cool stuff. And then my experience as his caregiver and, and just really looking at, like, how tough it is for caregivers um, and, and how it's really almost impossible to kind of make ends meet and care for them unless you're, you know, essentially really lucky these days. Mm-hmm. Going back to your dad and the care facility for just for a few moments, can you sort of address some of the challenges faced by these facilities, not just in caring for their residents, but in terms of how staffing turnover affects resident care and what you observed? If sure. that affected, you know, your dad's care at all? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so... These homes experience, on average, about 55% annual turnover in care in caregivers, and that I think wow. it's something. Um, it's huge. It's absolutely huge, and it's really problematic because if you can't introduce yourself to one person as somebody living with Alzheimer's dementia, you can you're not going to do it to like 10 new people or five new people or however many new people are coming through caring for you, and that's it. It leads to a lot of really disjointed care, uneven care. Um, and, and they certainly, you know, these new caregivers coming in, they're not going to, most of them never read those, those sort of printed out questionnaires or right. these handwritten questionnaires that these homes have. Um, and so we feel like it's really, you know, we feel it's really important to, to be able to have these stories told in a one page, really simple, beautiful version where you can print it out and you can put them in the care plans. You can put them up on walls. You can do really cool things with them and caregivers then can read them and and immediately know or at least get a sense of who these people are. One of the reasons why there's so much turnover is because it's such a miserable job. I mean, it's taking a person to the bathroom five times a day who you know nothing about and can't really talk to, let alone when they start to bite and kick like my dad did. Mm -hmm. That's like horrible. It's, It's not a fun job. But it's a totally transformed job if it's 
you're taking somebody to the bathroom five times a day who you respect enormously because they were a judge in life or like they were a doctor who healed people or they did all these really cool things. They were a dancer. They were an artist. Whatever it is that they were that builds bonds. And so it's, it's less of you're caring for a person now, not a, not essentially, not even a thing. I mean, the way a lot of caregivers in these homes that I've seen treat, treat people, it's worse than dogs, frankly. I mean, like yeah. dogs, you're at least like, they're like dogs are cute and you pet them. It's almost adversarial with these people because a lot of them get really aggressive and a lot of them, they just don't have any links to them. And, and to them, it's just this, they're a problem that they're dealing with and that they are trying to just sort of calm them down, shut them up and move them along or f- find ways to keep them as calm and kind of as sedate as possible. And that's not great for them. I mean, you want them to live this very full life. I mean, they are a person still inside of inside of what sometimes can look like a shell of a person. And, and you really need to work hard and you need staff to understand that you have to work hard to find that person and engage them and, and bring them out. So one of the things that we also are doing is developing kind of an app that enables families to like each, each page is sort of um, anchored by that person's stories, but then family members can also upload their loved one's favorite music and art and videos and readings. Because as we've all seen with like music and memory and other great programs like that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that just having these things that are incredibly personalized to them at their, fi- you know, at their fingertips really can help engage them and bring them to life and bring them out of that shell that they're in right now. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenges are probably greater in institutions than they are in home. Of course, we know that a lot of care is taking place in the home where you have private duty caregivers that are perhaps having an opportunity to bond with one person, as opposed to an institution where staff, they're low paid, they don't get the kind of support that that they need, really. So having a resident's story as a tool is helpful for them, too. It's not just helpful for the resident. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's really great. Um, So the book that you're writing now is slated to come out when? It's been in the works. I mean, look, between publicizing uh, broad influence, covering the Hillary campaign for Time magazine and then launching this company, um, it's my 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 my, you're a busy girl. Yeah, my plate's been really full for the last year, and I think much to my agent's mortification, I have not finished my <laughs> book pitch yet. So um, I, that, that's what I'm actually doing right now is, is finishing the book pitch so it can, it can be sold and then hopefully, you know, printed a bit eventually. But um, no, I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping to get it out. I think it's really ambitious. I don't know if it's going to happen. I would love to get it out before the 2018 elections. I think more likely it'll be the 2020 elections. And that, that's because I do think as much as like Broad Influence was a book that was very well timed for obviously an election that looked a lot at women's issues and right. women's place in the work in the right. workforce and a mm-hmm. woman running for president. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed Hillary Clinton for that book. Oh, wow. I think that this book is also probably potentially very well timed because we are seeing this cliff of caregiving, this sort of sandwich generation reaching critical mass to some degree where People, as, as more and more and more of the baby boomer generation um, hit 70, it's and more and more people are getting diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia, I think that if not by 2018, then 2020, it will become an electoral issue. And that's really where I'd like the book to begin to play, is, is sort of looking at all the, the problems that we have in the system, and then hopefully trying to find some solutions to them. Your book, Broad Influence, I didn't read the whole book, but I did look at some of it online, and Broad Influence, for listeners again, Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works, published in 2016. Your book examines how the shortfall of American workers that we're going to be seeing in the next 20 years, due to the retirement of 26 million baby boomers, will affect the workforce. What's your take on how those same 26 million 
boomers will be cared for as they grow older. Talk about the gig economy, the immigrant workforce, how this all connects. Yeah. So, you know, one of the people who's really been pushing me to, to finish the book early is um, Ai-jin Poo, who's, the, oh, yeah. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. her, but she's I do. the head of the Domestic Workers Alliance. Alliance. Mm-hmm. And and she talks in her book, and which is, you know, obviously amazing. She's a genius, uh, MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, and she wrote a great book about caregiving. And she talks in her book about how we are basically by 2020 going to be short 1.8 million caregivers um, in America. And because these jobs are so miserable, right? Like, like I said earlier, the, there's 55% turnover, right? In all of these jobs, and that's because the jobs are really difficult and nobody really wants them. And, and it ends up being mostly immigrants that take them. And most of them don't have college education. So one of the other challenges that I found in writing my dad's story was that I had to translate my dad's story into other languages because hmm. some of his caregivers didn't speak English well enough to even read his story, well, right? Or yeah. some of them. And so we, we, we tried to, yeah, we tried doing like, podcasts where like here's an audio file of like me reading the story in French for you you know what Mm -hmm. I mean like so one of the challenge I mean think the challenging things that this industry is facing is not only an incredibly shrinking labor pool which is going to shrink do nothing but shrink more especially if president-elect Trump does what he is pledged to do which is severely limit immigration to the United States that is just going to exacerbate this problem and we're going to be short a lot more caregivers in America and then the quality of the caregivers is a huge problem because you know if they if they don't speak English how do they communicate and empathize with people who really don't speak other languages potentially you know like mm-hmm. how do they how how do you find ways to build those bonds it becomes even more challenging and so it's uh it's definitely kind of a perfect storm of of a huge labor shortage there's going to be a massive shortfall of a generation that is rapidly aging and going to very acutely need care, potentially, you know, it'll happen very quickly and abruptly, and basically no infrastructure to support that care. So I was, I mean, personally, I was shocked that like Medicare doesn't cover any long-term care, anything. Right. And only 8% of Americans have long-term care insurance, and most of those are not baby boomers. And so so insurance isn't going to cover that shortfall. So if you don't have insurance covering this, you don't have Medicare covering it, the only thing that will cover it is essentially Medicaid. So basically what you already are seeing is millions of Americans, well, thousands right now, but down the road, millions of Americans who are going to start basically getting rid of their loved one's assets as quickly as possible, spending down their estates right. as hum- as quickly as humanly possible so they can dump them into Medicaid. It's already is, happening. Medi- yeah, I know people yeah. have done it. And yeah. so so that, I mean, and Medicaid cannot handle that at all. I mean, mm-hmm. Medicaid's already struggling to stay afloat. Mm-hmm. And so Alzheimer's and dementia, I think, will almost single-handedly bankrupt Medicare and Medicaid in the next sort of 15 years. And that's statistically, you know, out there. It's everyone's talks about it. And yet we're not doing anything to address. I mean, even like looking at Obamacare, there was a long-term care solution that was in, but then it got stripped out because it was deemed too expensive in the Senate version of the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at the repeal and replace options that the House and Senate Republicans are looking at right now, None of them address long-term care, which is really problematic because they all say it's too expensive. And yet, nobody is addressing this massive, massive problem that is going to bankrupt these programs very soon. The only people who are addressing it, frankly, are the states. And so you see states like New York, which just passed um, essentially a really fascinating kind of program that uh, imposes a a tax, and I can't remember what the tax is on, Hmm. but it basically um, creates a long-term care kind of entitlement for a fund uh, 
a fund uh-huh. for, for for elder New Yorkers who are going to need it, who cannot afford their own care. And because New York realizes that this is a, a huge problem, Hawaii is um, looking to vote on a similar fund right. uh, in, in the coming in the coming months. They I voted on it once already, right? And it didn't yeah, pass, it, right? Exactly. So they're going to take another pass at it in the, in the coming months. And then right. I think Maine, Maine is also voting on something. Similar. I mean, the only people who are doing anything about this problem are essentially the states. Right. Um, and even then, it's, it's only a handful of those states. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's the kind of thing where you're sort of like, the train is heading towards the cliff. The train's right. heading towards the cliff. The train's like <laughs> hanging over. Like, yeah, exactly. And you're like, you've got to do something about it, people. And like, and yeah, nobody will. And and of course, necessity is the mother of all invention, right? So, I and and I've covered Congress, you know, on and off for the last 15 years, and I can tell you, the Congress will not do anything about it until we're 14 and a half years into this problem, mm-hmm. and like right before Medicare, Medicare are going to go bankrupt. They'll like, oh my, be like, oh my God, we're going to do something. I mean, maybe not that acute, right. but certainly, like, right. it's certainly Congress never does anything until like the last minute deadline. And why is that? Is that because so many of those Congress members have other people who care for them or their health care plans are just so much better than everyone else's or less expensive? I mean, look, women make up a large percentage of caregivers and yet then they're more more represented in the workforce now. But uh, public policy, uh, in your book, in in Broad Influence, you write about the increase in the number of women who, who ran for political office in the wake of the Anita Hill uh, hearings and how women are more represented in Congress. So why aren't they raising these issues more? Or are they and they're just being drowned out by the, the men in the room? I think they are. I mean, like, look, women are now at about 20% of Congress. And if you think back to the time before Anita Hill, which is the year of the woman in 1992, basically think about it this way, like funding for Planned Parenthood didn't exist. Funding for Title IX was like, right. really meager, right? Like, the S-CHIP, which is the state children's health um, insurance plan, didn't exist. Breast cancer funding was $100,000 a year. That's now a thousandfold. Mm-hmm. Um, all medical all medical research um, was done only on men, not on women, because and which is insane because obviously our bodies are incredibly different and we process right. drugs differently and right. we experience disease very differently. And, right. like, and yet all medical research was exclusively done on men. There's like a whole host of just crazy things. I mean, there was no Violence Against Women Act. It was just amazing how much we have passed. They left you know, out the caregiving, women. though, Jay. <laughs> well, no, they passed. I mean, family, paid family, family leave. Medical, yeah, they, they passed. It's not paid, but it's family medical. Right, right, leave, right, right. Exactly, yeah. it's not paid. Um, right, but you're right. Like caregiving has always been the silver bullet that has never been addressed. You know, and whether it's childcare or elder care, it is the, the single thing that will help more women get into the workforce. And yet it's the one thing that Congress has never tackled or, or, you know, seems to never be able to tackle. And that's something that I think will clearly begin to change as everyone experiences this, as more and more and more people age out and everyone begins to have problems making ends meet. It will become an electoral issue where people will start to demand, what are you doing to help us? Because, you know, our families are going bankrupt. Right. And And I also think... I also think because so many baby boomers are about to have this experience and, and boomers want answers and boomers, they want to be paid attention to. You know, we're needy. I'm a boomer. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and baby boomers are not going to stand for some of the stuff. I don't mean to, you know, disparage the generation that came before us in terms of what their needs were and what they were willing to ask for. But baby boomers want what they want. And as they enter into those years where they need more help, they're going to demand it. And so I think it will become more of an issue uh, in, in time. 
I think you're right. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in terms of caregiving or policy? I'm really excited about your book that you're working on. It's really lovely that you're you're traveling around and you're reliving your father's life in a way. Uh, is there anything else yeah. you'd like to offer before we go quickly? Um, I guess I would just say, you know, if you're interested in the startup or if you're interested in just, you know, issues in caregiving, I can be reached through New America, like since where I'm doing my fellowship. It's just my last name, Newton Small, all one word, at newamerica.org. And we are actually actively looking for writers and any providers who are interested in the service as well, just also feel free to get in touch. Okay, great. Journalist Jay Newton Small, she's the author of Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works. She's also working on a new book about her father's life as a career UN diplomat and how she cared for him in the last years of his life. Jay also has a startup in the works that we're going to hear more about in a future episode. Jay, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it, Jenna. Bye-bye. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you don't want to miss any episodes, visit the AgeWise website. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com and subscribe to the podcast. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, Jana Panaritis, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. If you'd like to be on the show or just tell us what you think about it, send an email to Jana at agewyz.com. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. 